I want to say good morning and uh, welcome to Southwinds. We are so glad that you are here with us this morning. Also so glad for every one of you joining us online. Thank you uh, for taking part in this way. And we are beginning a brand new series this morning. It's called, quite simply, just the word gospel. And for the next three weeks, we are going to take some time uh, to dig in and get clear on what the gospel is. We're going to take some time to talk uh, together about how we can share the gospel with people who need to hear it. And then we're going to take some time in the third week uh, to grow in our understanding of how we can actually live our day-to-day lives following Christ as gospel people. And I want to begin by asking some questions. Maybe these are questions you've had in your mind from time to time. Have you ever wondered why so many Christians seem to be so much like pretty much everybody else? So much like the people who never go to church or the people who don't really have any obvious religious beliefs. Have you ever wondered why so many Christians are judgmental and critical and unloving towards people who differ from them? Have you ever wondered why so many Christians just seem kind of angry? Maybe you've wondered about why so many prominent people of faith seem to just get caught up again and again in scandal, why so many pastors and and priests abuse and wound and, and steal. In other words, have you ever wondered why so many people who name the name of Christ seem to have been changed so little? Now, I will just tell you right at the front of this, the answer to questions like this are actually pretty complex, but I do believe that a big part of the reason why is found in what we're gonna be walking through in these next few weeks. See, as Christ followers, we will say, every one of us, that we believe in the gospel, but here's the question, do we really get it? Do we truly understand it? And another question would be, are we sharing the gospel with other people who need to hear it? Are we in our lives from, you know, Sunday to Monday to Tuesday, all through the week, day after day, month after month, year after year, are we truly living it out, the gospel? That's what we're gonna be talking about these three weeks, and today we're starting off, and the title is Getting It. You know, do we understand? Do we understand the gospel? You see, the gospel is central to the Christian life. And of course, we all know today is Super Bowl Sunday. Well, maybe you could say the gospel like is the Super Bowl of the Christian life. It is the peak, it's the pinnacle, it's the climax, it's the goal. And the Bible repeatedly tells us that that the gospel is the way that we enter the Christian life. The gospel is the way we live the Christian life. But here's the problem. Too many Christ followers, maybe many of us, well, we actually, in reality, just see the gospel as only the beginning. The gospel is the way you get in. You get the gospel so that you can get in, so you can become a Christian, and it is. That's true, but that's not the whole truth. The gospel is so much more, and if you've never seen it before, my prayer is that you will begin to see it today, I wanna put it like this. The gospel is not the ABCs of the Christian life. It's actually the A to Z of the Christian life. I heard someone say one time that we tend to see the gospel as like the diving board off which we jump into the pool of following Jesus. But the truth is, the reality is, the gospel is the whole pool. It's everything. There's an interesting passage in Galatians chapter two, verse 14, where where Paul lays down a very powerful principle that I think most people kind of rush by. He's actually dealing with uh, Peter, his fellow apostle, Peter's racial pride, Peter's cowardice, because Peter is is committing the sin of, of partiality. But Paul says it like this. He says, I told Peter that he was not living in line with the truth of the gospel. And from this we see that the Christian life, it really is this, this process of renewing every dimension of our lives, spiritual and psychological and, and relational and corporate and social, on and on and on, by, by thinking, by 
hoping and by, by living out what Paul calls these lines, or maybe you could say the ramifications of the gospel. Another way of saying this is that the gospel needs to be applied to every single dimension of our lives, whether it's thinking or feeling or relating or working or behaving. You know, the gospel implications of Galatians 2.14 really are, are, are vast. I wanna focus your attention for a few moments kind of as the beginning of our message on a, a crucial passage about the gospel. It's Romans chapter, chapter one, verses 16 and 17. And in these two verses, Paul says this. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. What is this gospel that Paul is not ashamed of? Let me give you this definition. The gospel is the proclamation that God has reconciled us to himself through the death of his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross, where he died as a substitute for our sins. And when we repent of our sins and believe in Jesus, we receive the gift of God's righteousness and eternal life. That, that's a definition for us and it's something that we should have a, a good handle on that we should understand in our lives. But there's some things that kind of flow out of it that are very important for us to get. I wanna put it like this, the first one, the gospel is good news, it's not good advice. The gospel is not good advice about what you must do. The gospel is primarily uh, good news about what has already been done for you, about something that's already happened. And maybe you've heard it put like this, every other religion in the world says do. You have to do this, you have to do that. Do something, I mean, do something, anything to, to make it you know, to paradise or to, to achieve nirvana. But the gospel, the gospel says done. Jesus has already done everything we need for salvation and for life. And that's so important that we understand about the gospel. The gospel, because of this, is not, secondly, just about the forgiveness of our sins, but it's about us receiving Christ's righteousness. Receiving Christ's righteousness. There's another verse, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, so important to understand. Paul, again, is writing, he says, for our sake he made him, that is God made Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that it in him, that is in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. See, the gospel, the gospel is that Jesus has suffered God's wrath for our sin, that Jesus has taken our place as our substitute, that he lived the perfect life that we should have lived. He died the death we should have died. Why did he do that? Well, the answer is that so we could receive his righteousness. And the truth the Bible teaches is that though we are still imperfect and broken people and we still sin, who here is a sinner? Please uh, join me in a good confession of a reminder. Though we are still people who sin, the gospel means that we are people who have received Christ's righteousness. And what that means is that when God sees us, he sees us as he sees his son. Through the cross, we receive and we live in a new standing with God. And that changes so much if you get it and understand it. I'll mention this third. Because the gospel means that we have received Christ's righteousness, it means that the gospel is not just a set of ideas, but it's about experiencing God's power. Have you ever read Romans 1.16 and wondered, why does Paul call the gospel the power of God? The gospel's power, it's divine power. It's power to change, to change everything. Now take all of that, what does it mean? How, how do we get that? How do we begin to uh, flesh that out in our lives? And that's what we're gonna be talking about today. We, we wanna get the gospel. We wanna to get it right, that is to understand it accurately, what the Bible teaches, to, to truly understand what it is, and then we also need to understand how it works in our lives. Now, if I were 
subtitling today's message, I would probably call it three ways to live. And this concept is vital to getting the gospel. Uh, We're gonna be uh, looking at some truths that are pretty similar to some of those things we studied two weeks ago when we looked at Jesus' story that we often call the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son. And of course, if you were here, you remember we, we said it more accurately should be a story about two prodigal sons because there were two sons who were far from the father. And in that message, uh, we saw that there were two kinds of lostness, that there are two ways that the world just gets approaching God wrong. We called those the self-discovery way and the the moral conformity way. The self-discovery way, that's the younger brother. The moral conformity way, that's the older brother. And, And what that means is that there are actually two ways to be lost. There are two kinds of lostness, but there's only one way home. And that way, that way home is the gospel. And so understanding the two false ways And the one true way is at the heart of what it means to follow Jesus. And I am telling you today, it is essential to Christian living. It's not just essential so you go to heaven instead of hell. It is essential to your life day after day after day. If you weren't here and and you're not tracking with some of the things we talk about today, I'd encourage you to you know, go back and listen to that message or watch it online, either on our YouTube channel or uh, on our podcast or at our, our website. See, everyone, I think everyone, we've, we've all heard the idea that when you connect your life to Jesus, it changes your life. But how? How does that happen? How does Jesus change your life? And here's the thing I wanna set in front of you because I think this is the place where we can get off track. So many churches, so many churches give the impression that if you're just really, 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 really sold out for Jesus, like really surrendered, you know, really, really confessing all of your known sin and, and you're just really open to him and you're really worshiping, you know, all these, all these things that, churches say, and of course, so often they're not really clearly defined. If you just do all of that stuff, then somehow Jesus will come into your life and he'll change you. And there's some truth in some of that, but it's also open to a lot of misinterpretation. And I wanna be really clear as we're talking about this, that we believe the gospel of grace, that the gospel of Jesus' cross actually does change our lives. So you're not changed by first believing the gospel. This is what we're talking about. You're not changed by first believing the gospel and once you do that, you're done with the gospel and then you just go on to learn and discover and apply biblical principles for your daily life. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that you are changed by the gospel from first until last. You're changed by the gospel from first until last. And that means this on kind of the other side. If your life is not being changed, it is because of a failure to grasp and apply the gospel to your heart and to your life. Now, this happens in many different ways. We, we see life change happening. We practice this as part of our life together by preaching God's word. It, it happens through worship. It happens through life groups. It happens you know, through community we have in many ways. It can happen through personal counseling. It happens when we serve in, in all kinds of different ways. But what are we communicating through all these practices that we, we do? What is it that changes lives through them? And at the heart, it's the gospel. Now, we're still kind of asking, and you may still be wondering, well, how does that happen? How does God transform lives through the gospel? How does the heart get changed? And and what I wanna say to you in principle in general is that our hearts get changed when when the gospel transforms our hearts. And so we want, one of our goals is that for each person who's part of our, our family to know what it is to have a gospel transformed heart. I wanna ask, do you know? Do you know what it is to have a gospel transformed heart? Uh, I could, again, say more than this, but I'm gonna focus for the bulk of this message on the three following things. There are three things that you need uh, to have to learn to have a gospel-transformed heart. And here's the first one. The difference between the gospel and religion is just as great as the difference between the gospel and irreligion. 
Jesus' parable of the prodigal son gives us one of the clearest explanations. We saw this a couple of weeks ago about what the gospel is and about what we're talking uh, about in this series. And the, the crucial insight we saw two weeks ago is that there is a difference not only between the gospel and irreligion, or today we might call it secularism or, or you know, relativism or some other religion, unbelief. There's also a big difference between the gospel and religion between the gospel and morality, between the gospel and just a kind of generalized belief. And this is so critical to understanding. And the reason for this is this, the basic operating principle of religion, any religion, I don't care what it is, it's always gonna be something along these lines. I obey, therefore I'm accepted by God. I live a good life. That means I'm accepted by contrast, the basic operating principle of the gospel is that I'm accepted by God through Jesus Christ, therefore, I obey. Do you see, it's exactly the opposite. It's exactly the opposite. It's, it's not like the gospel is, you know, just a little different from religion. The gospel is diametrically opposed to religion. And here's the reality, it happens all the time. It likely is happening in this room. Two people living according to these principles in general can sit alongside each other you know, in church, or maybe every Sunday, and they're both praying, they're both giving their money to the poor, they're both trying to be good spouses and good parents, you know, they're both trying to be good employers, they're both trying to live according to the Ten Commandments, they're both trying to please Jesus, and, and they can do it for two utterly different reasons, two utterly different motivations. And because they have different motivations, because their hearts are in two utterly different places, which are opposing places, in spite of the fact that externally they're gonna look very similar underneath, their hearts are in very different places. And that means the fruit of their lives will really be different, and that's really the key insight. We, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, uh, Martin Luther was maybe the, the guy that articulated it in this form so uh, stunningly, so clearly, um, and I put it like this, the default mode of the heart is self-justification. That's the default, default mode of your heart um, if you're a human being. That's how you operate. And we, we all know what a, a default mode is. It's this thing you just do, right? You don't have to even think about it. It just kind of happens, you know, the default mode of our hearts is self-justification. That means we are always, apart from God, trying to save ourselves, trying to earn our salvation. And all of our, uh, you know, uh, in this tech world that we live in, all of our devices, you know, laptops, uh, your phones, whatever, what all, of, all of those devices, they operate in a default mode. They, they do that unless you tell them to do something different. Luther is saying that even after you're converted by the gospel, your heart will go back to operating on other principles. It will do that always unless you deliberately and intentionally keep resetting to gospel mode. Anybody have a tech problem in the last week or two? You know, how many of you kind of live as, you know, most of us are non-tech kind of people, right? My basic principle, you probably share this with me, is that like 95 plus percent of all the problems with my devices can be solved if I just turn them off and then turn them back on, right? You have to reset it. And that's kind of the principle we're talking about here. And the truth of the matter is, even if you get every single thing I tell you today, you're gonna go back sometimes, right? And so you're gonna need to reset. And this is so crucial. Living by the gospel, living in gospel mode involves continually resetting our hearts and resetting our minds, taking them away from that propensity that every single one of us has to try to justify ourselves, to try to earn favor with God to try to get right with him by, by what we do. You have to reset. Now, maybe you're going right now, okay, yeah, I, I think I'm tracking with you, Mike, I get it. Um, I'm saved by faith in what Jesus has done. I know I'm not saved by my good works. 
And so it's kind of like this. I could give a test today on justification alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, and maybe you'd pass that test 100%, but maybe your heart still doesn't believe it. Say, maybe your heart keeps going back to your default mode apart from Christ, to the old way. And that was the reason why I think Martin Luther was right to say that in spite of the fact that that people know the gospel enough to be saved and know the gospel enough to give the right answers about salvation and faith and grace, the way your heart functionally operates, in other words, how you relate to God day by day, how you relate to other people, how you forgive, and by the way, this is free, it's not in my notes, okay? If you struggle with forgiving, you're not living by the gospel. Now, if you don't understand what that means right now, don't get how that goes together, you should write it down and you should think about it. I'm telling you, and I know this is here, because we get hurt in this world, don't we? Some of us are struggling with resentment and bitterness against another person, maybe against God. And I'm telling you, that's one of the primary signs that your heart needs to be reset to gospel mode. Do you get it? You see? See, we, we have to keep going back. Our, our heart can functionally operate sometimes in a way that may not sync with what we believe in our heads. See, your heart can continue to operate on the basis of of self-justification, self-salvation. It's like this. I mean, and hey, be honest with yourself. We've all done this. If I'm good enough, I mean, if I read my Bible and pray enough, if I achieve enough, if I serve enough, if I I can live up to my standards, if I do all these things, then, then I'll be valuable. Then I'll have worth. Then I'll be significant. Then God, then God, then God will give me a comfortable life. He'll give me some success because he'll owe me. See, when we start to think like that, and every honest person in here realizes we all do that, every honest person should say amen right now. We all do that. Then that means your heart doesn't believe what your head does when that happens. So basically you could say that growing in Christ is about getting what your head knows down into your heart, getting the gospel down into every single solitary part of your being. See, the reason we have the problems we have is that our heads don't believe or our hearts don't believe what our heads actually know or sometimes truth is, it's that the head doesn't actually know it and, and that's one of the ways in which the heart changes. The head has to grow. The head has to know some things, has to grow in understanding and to become more convinced of the truth of the gospel. And so it's so easy for us as Christians to think, you know, there's two ways, you know, two ways to relate to God. You follow him and do his will or you reject him and you do your own thing. And and of course, ultimately that is true. You either follow God, obey God, you, you rely on God for salvation or you be your own savior and Lord. But what's important for us to understand in thinking about three ways to live is that there are two ways to be your own savior and Lord. There are two ways to reject God as Savior. And one of those ways is to be what we would call bad. You know, you do sins, you do the stuff you want to do, you break God's laws. But the other way that you can reject God is by being incredibly good, by being super moral. And maybe you come to Southwinds every Sunday, and maybe even you're a leader in some way, you're serving in a ministry but you're doing that saying, God, God, you must love me because of what I'm doing for you. God, you owe me. And if you're thinking that, you're still trying to be your own savior and Lord. You're still trying to earn it. So, so two ways to be your own savior and Lord. One by being bad or being irreligious. The other by being very good and very religious. But they're both wrong. And if you follow those ways, both ways will lead you to being lost forever. See, here's the thing that I know is true. Some of you, you came here this morning and you had a bad week. I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand, okay? But you had a bad week. 
And what I, what I mean by a bad week right now is that you had a bad week spiritually. Like you didn't read your Bible too much. You didn't pray. You know, you, you said some things you wish you hadn't said. You did some things you wish you hadn't have done. You thought some things you know you shouldn't have thought. And you walk through these doors feeling very, very guilty, very ashamed. Again, you can relax. I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand. This is just between you and God, but I know it's true. I, I, I see the tension on some of your faces. It's true. And you came here this morning and you know Jesus died on the cross for your sins, but you're not so sure God likes you right now. You're hoping, some of you, when you walk through these doors, maybe I can have a good Sunday. You know, I, I can get my praise on real good and I can pray real hard, you know, during the service and I can really, really listen to the message, you know, that gets preached. I can take some good notes and, and then maybe I'll be better with God and God will be better with me when I, when I leave. And if you're thinking you gotta do some things for God to like you again, you're trying to justify yourself. You're not living by the gospel. How about this one? You ever, ever commit a sin and then you, you confess it and your head says, I know God forgives me, but I still feel guilty. And so kind of what a lot of us do is we think, I, you know, I, I should feel bad for, I don't know, a day or so. If I feel bad for a day or so, then it'll be okay. And if it's a really bad sin, I may need to feel bad for a week but I have to feel bad, I have to feel guilty, I have to live in that place so that I can experience forgiveness. And if we do that, we're trying to justify ourselves. We're depending on how we feel to determine whether or not we're forgiven. Or maybe this, maybe the truth is today as you sit in this place, in this room, with your brothers, your sisters, in Christ, the truth is, you are mad at God right now. You're mad. You're angry with God because you've been good and you've been faithful and God has not come through for you. And you don't have something in your life that you think you should have had by now. Maybe you're not in a relationship or in a certain place that you thought you would be, that you thought God should have given you by now. You think God owes you and whenever we think that, and we've all thought that, I do this, whenever we do this, it means we're trying to justify ourselves. It means we're not living by the gospel. It means we need to reset to gospel mode. And so what I'm telling you today is that getting the gospel in part means that we learn to train our hearts to live by the gospel all the time. And it's not about religion. It's not about doing stuff. You know, you can, you can be a very religious person and the reality is you can be as far from God as any secular non-believing person that you work with or that you live by. And in short, maybe I could say this, there's as sharp a distinction between religion and the gospel as there is between irreligion and the gospel. And we said this a couple of weeks ago, irreligion or unbelief is avoiding God as Savior and Lord by disobeying him and ignoring him Religion or moralism is avoiding God as Savior and Lord by doing good things and by giving that righteousness to God so that he owes you. See, the gospel is never that we develop righteousness and give it to God so he owes us. It is always that he develops righteousness through Jesus Christ and he gifts that righteousness to us so that then we owe him. We always are in debt to him. See, the gospel divides everything. It is the divide between religion and irreligion, and you can avoid God in either way. Now, the second thing I wanna do today is I wanna show you where that comes from, and I wanna show you that this three ways to live paradigm is kind of taught all, all through the Bible. You know, maybe you're saying, okay, this, this sounds like it makes sense, Mike. I mean, I think I get it, uh, but but where do you get this? And why haven't I heard this before? And I, I think it's really all through the Bible. And I think it's been 
um, substandard teaching, some of which I have done as a pastor, I think, uh, that has kept people from seeing that. So let me give you a couple biblical sources, and there's so much more uh, that could be said than what we have time for today. Uh, The first place I wanna start is the book of Romans. And if you've read the book of Romans, and if you haven't read the book of Romans, you should read the book of Romans. But if you read the book of Romans, maybe you'll remember that in Romans chapter one, the second half of the chapter, basically verses 18 through 32, Paul spends time talking about the fact that, that the world is lost. These wicked pagan Gentiles, they're lost. And it's like this, you know, you read those verses, you'll think it's these people that are like partying and they're having sex with everyone and like everything. You know, that's kind of the impression you get from Romans one. These are lost people. They're the pagans. They're the irreligious people. But then if you Go past Romans 1.32, the last verse of the chapter, and you read Romans 2, verse 1, and keep going, you realize that Romans 2 is all about the fact that, that these Bible-believing, God-fearing, very righteous, very devout religious people, in this case, the Jewish people, they're also lost. And, and then you, you, you get after that, you know, Romans 1, the bad people, the pagan people, and then after Romans to the, the good people, the religious people. You get to chapter three and in verse nine, Paul says, what can we conclude from this? He says, are we any better? And, and then verses 10 through 12 of Romans three says this. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And that is an amazing statement. And Paul didn't just make that up. If you looked in your Bible at those verses, you'll, you'll notice that they, they give evidence that they're a quote from the Old Testament. They're actually a compilation of some verses from Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 that Paul puts together. And so when, when Paul is saying uh, that the people who are religious, the people who are trying to obey the law, keep the Ten Commandments, those folks that are talked about in Romans 2, he says they are not seeking God. He says they're not seeking God. That's kind of a strange statement, isn't it? What he's really saying is this. It's possible to be incredibly, incredibly disciplined in obeying God, but you're you're not trying to get God. You're trying to get things from God. You're trying to get heaven from God. You're trying to get self-esteem from God. You're trying to earn and, and merit, and your heart is saying, by your religious activities, I have to do all these things, and if I do all these things, then God will give me all the things that I want. And you say, of course, I'm seeking God. I'm trying hard. I I want God to bless me and take me to heaven. And Paul is saying, no, you're not seeking God. You're seeking things from God. God is a means to an end for you. You are seeking your own glory, ultimately seeking to be your own savior. And that means you're not seeking God. It's an amazing statement. You know, come to the end of Romans 2 after Paul has talked about how amazingly fastidious his, his brethren are in trying to obey God, but then to say, you're not seeking God at all. And so Romans 1 and Romans 2 and Romans 3 are like a perfect example of the fact that there is irreligion and there is religion and then there's the gospel, and so, so many of us don't see that. And I think for many years I read Romans and I, I didn't make this connection because I had this tendency to say, well, like, here's the irreligious Gentiles and here's the Jews and of course the Jews don't believe in Jesus. So of course, you know, and I had to, this tendency to miss the forest for the trees until I began to see this in the rest of the Bible. Here's another example, the Sermon on the Mount. Now the Sermon on the Mount is recorded in Matthew 5 uh, through 7. And if you remember, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, after Jesus has laid out all these these truths, it says there are two paths. There's the broad road that leads to destruction. There's the narrow way that leads to life and salvation. Jesus also says at the end of this sermon, there are two trees, the, the tree that bears fruit, the tree that doesn't. There are two houses. So there's two paths, two trees, two houses. And so you might think, well, I just need to choose the right one. 
And I could ask you, what do you think these two ways represent? And we would usually say, well, the narrow way is living God's way. The broad path is abandoning God and, and, and not believing in God. That's how we usually see it. But go back and read the sermon again. Go back and look at it again. Slow down and think about what you're reading. And Jesus, when he gets to the end, says there's two paths. But think about the two paths he's been describing all through the Sermon on the Mount. If he's talking about two paths at the end of the sermon, he must be referring to something he's been talking about. Does that make sense? And if you go back and you read the Sermon on the Mount, you see that there's a contrast being made between two types of people. But it's not about people who pray and people who don't pray. It's about people who pray so that other people can hear them and glorify them and people who just talk to God and only want to connect with God. It's not about people who give to the poor and who don't give to the poor. It's not about, it's not about people who are trying to obey God's laws and people who aren't trying at all. If you look carefully, you'll see both groups are doing all those things. Both groups pray. Both groups give alms. Both groups are trying to obey God's laws. But one group, in each case, is obeying and doing the good things so that God, so that other people will see. But the other group, it's private. One group, they pray out in public. One group just goes into the closet. One group is judgmental, condemns. The other group is not. And as you begin to see this, you start to realize that the two paths that Jesus is talking about are religion and the gospel. Not irreligion and the gospel. What Jesus is really aiming at is people who are outwardly religious, but they're not gospel-oriented. Let's keep on going. Another example would be the, the two prodigals as we saw two weeks ago. What was so shocking really about that parable of Jesus is that there was this younger brother and an older brother. One was bad, one was good. Uh, we know the story. The younger brother goes off. He squanders the inheritance on, on uh, you know, unrighteous living with prostitutes maybe, just a very licentious life. The elder brother, everything's good on the outside. He stays home, he obeys the father. But in the end, both of them are alienated because when the, the father, brings the younger brother back by his grace. The older brother is so furious that he won't even come into the feast. And in the end of Jesus' story, of course, the older brother is lost because the father's feast represents salvation and the younger brother who had sinned grievously, he is saved because he received the gospel by grace. See, in that story, what Jesus is doing actually is giving the people who heard him people who were probably a lot more like us than we would imagine. He was giving them like a mirror, a picture of themselves. So in the end, religion doesn't save just as much as irreligion doesn't save. There are two kinds of lostness, two kinds of ways to avoid the gospel. And again, so many people who think they are Christians, who, who like go to church, they're active maybe in Christian circles, they're, they're basically elder brothers, they're basically Pharisees, and, and the reason that they serve and give and, and, and do all the things they do is, is that there is a sense of trying to earn. There's no sense of God in their lives. And that gets back to the questions I asked at the beginning of the message. Why are these people so judgmental and critical? Why are they angry all the time? Why are they anxious, nervous? It's basically because their heart is resting in how good they are. They're trusting in their relative lack of sin. They are looking at the fact that they're doing good things and they're basically resting their sense of self-worth on their performance. So everybody sees the difference between the gospel and irreligion. What we tend to miss, and this is so important for people like us, is the difference between the gospel and religion. Now I wanna flesh this out really practically for a few minutes and I'm gonna put some examples of what we're talking about um, on the screen. Uh, I wanna show you a contrast between religion and the gospel. And here's the first contrast. This is one I mentioned at the very beginning of the message, but it's the core contrast, so I want you to see it again. Um, religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. 
The gospel says I'm accepted, therefore I obey. And you should have this contrast in your minds because I don't, I'm just telling you, I don't care how much you understand this. I don't care if you know this perfectly. You will slip from the gospel back into religion sometimes. Has that ever happened to anyone else? Or is that just me? Bunch of untruthful people. <laughs> it happens to all of us, okay? So I want you to see that that's the base one, but let's, let's kind of flesh that out um, a little farther. Uh, what about motivation? Well, religion's motivation is based on fear and insecurity. So some of us obey because we don't want to go to hell or God's going to get me. Uh, you know, if, if, if I don't read my Bible today, God's going to do something to me, right? I'll get a ticket, you know, something bad's going to happen. I obey or bad things will happen. But the gospel says my motivation is I, 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 I obey out of thankfulness and, and joy. Totally different. Here, here's another one. Religion says I obey God to get things from God. The gospel says I'm saved by grace, therefore I obey God to get God. Not to get things, I, to get God. I mean, think about it. If you believe the gospel, the gospel is true, which it is, then you already have eternal life. So what more do you want? Why would you obey? Well, you should be obeying to get God, to know God, to delight in God, to become more like God. You're getting more of God. Look at this one. Circumstances. When circumstances in my life go wrong, if I'm living according to religion, I'm angry at God or myself because I believe that anyone who is good deserves like a comfortable life. See, if you don't understand the gospel, if you're not living by the gospel, when you, when you suffer, either you're mad at God and you say in some way, God, I'm living a good life, this is not right, because you basically believe in your heart that if you live a good life, good things should happen. You're either mad at God because you think you deserve better from him or you're gonna be mad at yourself and you'll just judge and condemn yourself. Or maybe you'll do both. You'll go back and forth. You're mad at God, you're mad at yourself. You just do both. But the gospel, by contrast, says when circumstances in my life go wrong, yes, I struggle, but I know that all my punishment falls on Jesus, and I know that my God, he may be allowing this for my discipline and my training to make me more like Jesus, but I know that he is exercising his fatherly love within my trial. And so I can rest. I can, in a sense, relax, even in my pain, See, the gospel says I don't deserve a good life. I know I deserve hell. And that means I, I know that this struggle, this trial I'm going through cannot be retribution for God. It cannot be that I'm being punished for my sins. But God must be doing something and so I can trust him. I know he's good. I know he'll never be unfair to me. Religion, on the other hand, says for the next one, when I'm criticized. So how do you respond when you're criticized? Well, religion says I'm, I'm furious or I'm devastated because it is so essential for me to think that I'm a good person and so any threats to that self-image must be destroyed at all costs. Are you touchy? You get defensive all the time. Very often it's a sign you're not living by the gospel. Gospel says when I'm criticized, I struggle. Yes, of course I do. But my identity is based on God's love, not on my performance. Therefore, therefore, criticism doesn't actually shake me to the core of my being. It doesn't get at my foundation. You know, think about it like this, a, a tree. You know, if there is a, a blow to a branch, it doesn't destroy the whole tree. But if there is an attack at the roots, that can take the tree down. You see, the more you understand the gospel, the more that criticism will become just a blow to a branch. It won't be an attack on your roots. It doesn't shake everything about you. Now, we could keep going on this. I, I don't have slides for these, but I'll just give them to you real quickly if you can write real fast. How about prayer? Well, religion says my prayer life is about you know, petition, asking God for stuff, because I wanna get stuff from God. That's what, that's what religion is all about. You know? um, and I only really kind of get into prayer mostly when I'm in this time of great need in my life, because really the truth is, be honest with yourself, your 
purpose in prayer is to control your life, to get God to do the stuff you want. But in the gospel, my prayer life is gonna consist more and more of just this generous stretches of, of praise and adoration. I, I'm, not, I'm not praying to get control of my life because I'm trusting God to do that. God's not a boss I have to control with my good deeds. I can just live in fellowship with him. How about this, self-worth? Anybody struggle with self-worth? Well, in religion, my sense of self-worth swings between two poles. When I'm living up to my standards, I feel confident, but I'm prone to be proud and judgmental of failing people. But when I'm not living up to my standards, I feel, I, I feel like a failure. But the gospel, by contrast, just creates a unique sense of identity, and it's, it's not based on how well I do. It's not a based on my achievements. Uh, we, we use this phrase from time to time. Uh, my, my identity is based, there's this Latin phrase that came out clearly um, from the reformers. I am simul justus et peccator. It means simultaneously sinful and lost, yet accepted in Christ. Someone said it like this. I am so bad that Jesus had to die for me, and I am so loved that he was glad to die for me. And when you understand that, it leads to this deep humility. You're, you're not destroyed by your failures. At the same time, when your successes, you have this confidence, but you don't become superior. It's neither swaggering nor sniveling. When, when you're living as a gospel person, that's your identity. So in religion, you know, it's based on how hard I work, how moral I am. But in the gospel, I just love and serve out of the overflow of all that God has done for me. Now, this has been a lot of pretty intense, I'm gonna call it biblical or theological reasoning, and in the next couple weeks, we're gonna have opportunity to flesh this out even more, but I wanna give you a couple things to leave you with today that basically just kinda answer this question that you can see in your notes um, if you're using the, um, the app. Why does all this matter? And let me give you three things really quickly. First, it matters because there are many people who believe they're Christians, they're professing Christians, but probably they're pretty much pure older brothers. Now, you can't be sure, and so I just tell you, don't go around trying to figure it out. If you've already identified someone like in your row and you're saying, yeah, that's them, that, then you need to repent, okay, right now. It's not your job, say I am not God. It's not your job, stop, you can't know that. But here's one thing we all can know, because the Bible talks about this. There are plenty of people who profess faith, they've received baptism, and yet they are unregenerate. Jesus talks about that in the Sermon on the Mount. There's another of, um, a number of other places. There are plenty of professing Christians who at some point later on come back and say, you know, last year I realized what the gospel really was for the first time, and and my relationship to God finally started. I mean, I, I like walked an aisle, prayed a prayer years ago. I got baptized years ago, but I realized I just came to faith just now. I hadn't ever experienced the new birth. This happens all the time. So if this happened to you, you shouldn't feel really bad. It's kind of interesting thing about 10 years or so ago, three of our five pastors at that time, that was their experience. All of them had prayed a prayer, walked an aisle, been baptized, and yet only later on in their life came to faith in Christ. And so this is important because sometimes people think they're in Christ, but they're not. Secondly, it's important because many genuine Christians are incredibly older brother-ish. I like that word ish, some of you know. Um, I think you know what I'm saying here. People who actually know Christ, they have come to faith in him, but still part of their lives, they're, they're, they're living the other way. And uh, many of these people were raised in, in churches, you know, and, and they've never come to really understand the gospel. The gospel has not worked itself down into their hearts. And maybe some of you are going, I think that's me. Well, this series is for you. But there's a third reason um, that I wanna give you, and then I'm done. 
third reason is lost people will misunderstand the gospel. And this is so important. See, the average non-Christian thinks they understand Christianity pretty well because like they've seen it. And many of those people who are not Christians, they've been raised in churches and they don't want anything more to do with it. Or they know some people who say they're Christians. They don't want anything to do with them. In other words, they think they understand Christianity. They think they do, but they don't. And so unless you tell them, unless you show them, as you, as you share what the Bible says, as you witness about your faith, unless you, as you're speaking to the people around us, you know, secular people, postmodern people, people who believe in, you know, the faith of relativism, unless you learn how to make a distinction between religion and the gospel, when you call them to faith in Christ, when you challenge them to believe in Jesus, they will assume, listen to me, that you are asking them to become religious. If you say to someone in our culture, you need to receive Jesus into your heart as Savior, and you're not saved by works, you're only saved by your faith in Jesus Christ, so believe in Jesus, ask him into your life. Here's what they're gonna think, just automatically, they're gonna think that you're asking them to become really, really good people. You're asking them to go to church. They will automatically think you're bringing them into religion, and unless you help them see the contrast between religion and the gospel, that's what they think that you're asking them to do. And not only that, unless you contrast religion and the gospel, they will not understand why so much of the church just turns them off. But it's when you show them the contrast, there. And only there will they have a chance of seeing the truth and responding to the true gospel. Do you see why? Maybe a little more than when we started, this is so important. Three ways to live. Three ways to live. I just wanna leave you with this question. Do you know that you're getting it? Are, are you growing in your grasp of the gospel? And if you want to, and if you think you are, are you, are you willing to ask God to open your heart, open your mind, help you to see how the gospel applies to your life, to your heart, to your thoughts, to everything in, in ways maybe you haven't ever seen before? Will you read his word with, with new gospel transformed eyes? And then some of you, maybe here today, and you're kind of checking things out. You, you don't know if you believe. You, you've never truly received this gospel. This gospel, this good news that tells you Jesus Christ died in your place for your sins to make you right with God. This good news that all you need to do is repent of your sins and place your trust in Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection life. And if you do that, you will receive the gift of eternal life. And I also invite you, if that's you, will you do that? Will you pray? If you don't know how to do that, will you talk to me, one of our other pastors, maybe someone who brought you? You could tell them that's what you're struggling with and they can help you take that step. I, I hope that you will. I hope that you will listen to God as he's speaking to you. Next week, we're going to keep going deeper. We're gonna be talking together about how we can share the true gospel. And then the week after that, we're gonna go even deeper into how we can truly live the gospel out. And I just wanna say as we close, this is really deep stuff. And I understand that. And it can take a long time to really work out from our heads into our hearts so that we can live it each day more and more. So let's pray as we close Let's pray that God would help us to do that.